To me, hope is about feeling that there are ways in which we can solve this. There are things we can do that will make it better. Optimism is about, you know, to me, and this is semantics, you know, what are the odds that we will succeed? And even if the odds are only 10%, my feeling is there's still hope and we have to keep trying. Welcome back to another episode of Who is Saving the Planet. I am joined by the eternally almost optimistic Jess Miles. <laughs> I need to absorb the aura of my room to, to fill up my optimism cup. For those of you playing at home, Jess's room is quite literally a 360 degree tableau of an idyllic Edenscape with a literal rainbow that frames your head. <laughs> yeah. But no, I well listen. I, I think that you you don't need to change it all because you're wonderful just the way you are. Um, yes, but okay. We just had the opportunity. We're about to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Bill Weil, the uh, executive director and founder of Climate Voice. Yeah, I really really enjoyed speaking with him. We had a really good conversation about like hope in the climate space and the role of companies in terms of putting pressure on them to speak up about climate action. Um, there's a lot of mentions about cookies and now I'm just thinking of the book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. So <laughs> this is a fun time. Well, it, yes, it was a great time. And we went long on this one because we just had such so much to talk about. And he was such an engaging and fascinating person. Um, Bill, right now, like I said, executive director of Climate Voice, which is climatevoice.org. And their organization is dedicated to getting the top five tech companies, Alphabet, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft to commit one in five lobbying dollars for climate policy aimed at a just transition to keep us below 1.5 degrees of warning, warming. So it is one in five for 1.5. That is what their goal of their organization is. And Bill sure as heck knows a lot about that because before he had this role, he was the director of sustainability for Facebook for six years. And then before that, he worked at Google as the energy czar for six years. So he has literally been inside of these companies and has decided that he can influence them more effectively by coming outside and telling the story about why they need to not only improve their operations, but actually put their dollars down when it comes to making the planet a better place. When um, we were interviewing Andrew for the Gives episode, you mentioned that there's not a lot of people who come out of investment banking and try and do something good. And I feel like it's similar for people who are in big tech companies like Facebook and Google, where even if they notice problems, it's it's very hard and very rare for them to come out the other side and, and try and do something to influence those companies to make better choices. I agree, Jess. It was so wonderful talking with him. And uh, he just is uh, a really inspirational guy because, you know, like you said, he, he decided to go from what was a very comfortable situation in these companies and say, you know what, I can affect more change from the outside in. And he's living that truth. He is he's putting his work in on actually affecting change in a way that I'm sure is hard, harder than doing it from the inside out. So we salute those efforts. Again, the website is climatevoice.org. And this is our conversation with Bill. 
he was a great guy. We do jump right in. So we do jump right into the middle. When we, we get in, we get into it hot and heavy. So <laughs> the introduction comes a little bit after. But here you go. This is our conversation with Phil Wild, the executive director and founder of Climate Voice. Okay. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Jess Miles is here. I cut you off mid-sentence. Keep going. What were you about to just say? Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so, you know, we were talking about pessimism, cynicism versus optimism and so on. People often say, and there's in the climate world, there's so much emphasis on we need to give people hope. We need to have a positive message. And I think that's important. People need to feel that you know, feeling hopeless is, you know, then we're all going to crawl in a hole somewhere or just go drink or, you know, whatever works for you. Um, but I distinguish between hope and optimism. To me, hope is about feeling that there are ways in which we can solve this. There are things we can do that will make it better. Optimism is about, you know, to me, and then this is semantics, you know, what are the odds that we will succeed? And even if the odds are only 10%, my feeling is there's still hope and we have to keep trying, right? I think actually the odds are much better than 10%, but I don't think they're 90. I mean, if you look realistically at where we are and the powerful forces working on the other side, um, I think there are a lot of reasons to be pessimistic or certainly unsure, but I think there are a lot of reasons to hope. And then you listen to people like Greta Thunberg um, and, you know, Honestly, she's all about outrage. And I think there are a lot of reasons to be outraged. And outrage can fuel action, and that actually can then fuel hope. So, I mean, Jess, I would agree with you. There are a lot of reasons to, to think things might go south again, as they did after Trump got elected. I think it's on all of us to do our damnedest to try to make that not happen. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you made the distinction between how you put it, um, hope and optimism. The one that I've heard and that I like is the difference between um, hope and grounded hope. And hope is like belief with no basis in anything and sort of just blind faith. And then grounded hope is like, well, it's probably not going to succeed and we're probably, it's probably going to fail, but trying anyway. And so that's sort of where I fall on the spectrum of things because I really, polar bears are my favorite animal. There's a 99% chance they're not going to make it. <laughs> so that doesn't give me a lot of reason to hope that anything else will be solved. And as far as our age, I don't know how I feel about it because I think people throw the cliche of if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention around way too much because <laughs> it feels like I've been outraged my whole life uh, and it's gotten me nowhere except like self-hatred and frustration at the state of the world you know so, i, I first know. saw that expression and you're not outraged you're not paying attention back when i was in college which when and i spent most of my career studying the bush administration my career my collegiate times studying the bush administration and that was thrown around a lot when we went to war for the wmds that weren't there about the outrage so i do agree that like if you're in your 20s 30s even 40s we've just been hit with this continuous slog of like really troubling, massive existential issues. 
Well, yeah. yeah, welcome to the podcast. You saved the planet, everybody. Glad <laughs> on to that cheery note, it's a stunning Friday in San Francisco, day right. after Earth Day. Um, yeah, it's hard. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm in my early 60s and I've seen a number of things where it's like, that's outrageous. And, and then sometimes things get better and then often they don't get as much better as we had hoped. I could, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I could point to a number of leaders on the nominally progressive side who didn't end up being anywhere near as progressive as I and many others hoped. And at the same time, you got to keep fighting. I mean, I think that that um, there was an interesting piece I read recently about, you know, climate anxiety being, and, and I'm not trying to say you guys are super privileged or whatever, but that climate anxiety is, is, is um, something that is prevalent among privileged people and especially white people. And I, and I think at some level, I think about myself, I haven't spent my life daily thinking about there's an existential threat to my life or my family. There have been periods you know, of months or years where I certainly was quite worried about things in the world, but not personally. There are people in the world, black, m many, most, maybe all black people in this country who walk around feeling like they're at existential risk all the time. So I think for a lot of us, I mean, I've been freaked out about climate now for 15 years, so it's not, not something I came to recently, but I think, you know, I'm guilty of 15 years ago going, holy shit, this is really bad. I was coming from a place of privilege and had the privilege and the luxury to be able to look at where the climate was headed and what it might mean and think we need to do something about that and was sitting in a place of privilege where I could afford to take the time and do that. And, you know, but, but at the same time, you know, the question of how do you maintain a sense of grounded hope, you know, not just blind faith, though for some people faith does it, but um, I would agree with you, Jess, that blind, certainly faith is not a strategy. You can have faith, but you still have to figure out what the strategy is and what the plan is to 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 get where you think things need to go. I think that's so it's such an important point. I completely agree with all of that. That like often if you you go through the Maslow's hierarchy of like, do you have food? Do you have shelter? Are you safe? Are you secure? And if you if if you trip up on any one of those points, you can't you don't have the mental energy to get to the next one, right? You you have to deal with that. And so because we now are in this world of existential threat for climate change, a lot of the people that, that never had to worry about those other things now have to now are feeling guilty. And I think a lot of it's like, well, what are you going to do with that? Right? Like what level of sacrifice or change or intention are you going to apply to that? And like, yes, I certainly have been fantastically privileged. And now it's like, all right, put it to work, you know, like figure a way to actually get that and make it useful. Can I push back just a little bit? Not directly, but I, I do think that you, you're both accurate in saying that the environmental movement in general um, has a significant privilege issue, but like tending towards white, wealthy, uh, generally privileged people. I think that's 100% a problem in the climate space. I feel like though, sort of how you're saying, Bill, that people of color go around constantly feeling like they're in an existential threat that they've been feeling climate anxiety for a while, especially in places now 
that are being impacted by the climate and sea level rise and maybe the drought, like they're having droughts that are affecting their food and stuff. It's just that the privileged people who have power haven't been listening to them until it affects them. And I think it's just important to keep in mind the inter interdisciplinary nature of like the climate issue um, because there have been people who have been trying to like warn about this for a long time who aren't necessarily privileged. Totally agree. Yeah, I had an opportunity to speak. We did a series over the summer of, of youth climate activists in other parts of the world. And we spoke to two young women, one who is Israeli and the other is Palestinian about the way that they come together over climate activism. And a young man at the Jammu Kashmir border in India, whose town was literally being besieged by the government and they cut off the internet and he's still on the street saying climate's important. And the young woman who I'll never forget, Elizabeth Gulugulu, who is in Zimbabwe. And we got through the conversation about how she's doing everything she can to raise awareness for climate. And I was like, your parents must be so proud of you. And she was like, um, unfortunately, they passed away. And I was like, you are every inspiration that we can need, but also like, we all need to take a part of this, right? Whatever we can, because like you said, Jess, even if you have very little, it matter, it's going to affect your life. And so the more you have, the more responsibility you need to apply to the issue. Um, you know, you're, you're, you know, the more you have, the more responsibility you have. I think what we're, you know, at some level, you want to come at it from a moral responsibility perspective. That's what we're saying with Climate Voice, that those who have enormous power and wealth have a responsibility to drive the system change that will get us where we need to go on climate. So the problem, as I see it, with you know, or, or the, the core, there are many, climate is one of the most complicated systems problems I think humanity has ever faced. It's certainly extremely complicated, right? There are technical issues, physical systems issues around nature and technology, and then there's sociological issues and political issues, and it is a big knotted mess. Mm -hmm. But the thing that is most holding us back from making the progress we need to make at the, the speed and scale we need to make it is very powerful vested interests who have spent decades amassing influence in our political system. When I say our, I mean in the US, state, federal, you know, local, but also overseas, you know, outside the US. They have enormous influence and they use it to protect their businesses. And, and when I say they, I mean the fossil fuel industry. They've mm -hmm. spent decades amassing influence and, uh, and they use it to pre protect themselves. So when there is a meaningful climate related policy, they are almost always in there fighting it. You know, the individual companies, their trade associations, the trade associations that the big ones like the US Chamber of Commerce whose stance on this issue has at least until recently been pretty much guided by the big energy companies. They are in there using their influence. And, you know, there are activists in the street, whether it's, you know, young people in cities in, in the US or it's people overseas who have been speaking up and marching and yelling and calling on rich countries like, like the US to do more but they don't have the same kind of influence in the halls of power as the fossil fuel industry does. They just don't. 
they're not in there every day with their lobbyists and they're not making campaign contributions and you know so on and so on. And the problem then is that all of these other companies that are have been leading on climate, including my former employers, Google and Facebook, which you know I, I'm proud of the work I did there. I think those companies are real leaders on climate in a lot of ways. There are also things they're doing that are serious problems. We can get to that, but they, you know, they pioneered, you know, buying clean energy at scale, you know, being carbon neutral, energy efficiency that just beats the pants off everybody else in their operations, in their data centers, in their servers, you know, that managing their own carbon footprint, they have been leading and beginning to look at their supply chains, they are leading. And when it comes to public policy, which we need to decarbonize fast enough, they are mostly silent. So they have enormous influence. They're giant companies. They're hugely profitable. They, you know, they can't, they can keep track of all the money. I'm sure the CFO does a fine job of that, but there's so much of it that, you know, I, I like to think that they just can't keep track of it. And they have influence, which they use when it is to their benefit. And occasionally they use it when it is to society's benefit, but not directly to theirs. But most companies use their influence when it benefits them. And if it's not a direct benefit to them, they stay out of the issue. And so what we are working to change with Climate Voice is we want those companies who are climate friendly, who say climate's a crisis, who say it's a, you know, an existential threat, who say we all need to do our part, we want them to go all in on climate in everything they do. They're doing it in their operations, they're doing it in their supply chain, they're doing it in some ways in their products. They have not been doing it in the use of their influence in our political system. And that is a major thing that big companies do. Part of how they operate is, you know, helping shape the rules of the, of, of the market that guide how they and other companies work. And they're on the sidelines mostly when it comes to clean energy policy, clean buildings policy, clean transportation policy, carbon pricing, cap and trade or whatever. You know, they do speak up occasionally, but far too little. And the result is the fossil fuel companies dominate the political debate from a business perspective. And that's a big part of why we are where we are today. So I, I will let you ask questions about Climate Voice specifically, Lux, um, but I just think that you brought up um, a few interesting things. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast Drilled at all, but it goes into how the fossil fuel companies have like all this power and how they amassed all this, this influence. And I couldn't, I couldn't even finish it because it just is like probably the most depressing, heart-wrenching thing that I've ever listen to so when you're talking about like the the influence of the fossil fuel industry and our policy making that's immediately like where my mind went to plus all those news stories you saw about like exxon and their lawsuits about like what they knew when about climate change um that i think were in 2019 i don't know somewhere around there and then the other thing is i know or i read or saw a headline saying that the Supreme Court was going to be hearing a case that would make Citizens United even worse. 
and the whole thing with like hold my beer tyranny like let's just go ahead and make it even more accessory chest no you're fine i mean it's it's awful and i um am not a a law junkie so i don't know if it's been heard yet or not but i just know that like the thing with citizens united is dark money going into political campaigns and and super PACs and things like that and so yeah i don't know that if it got past, it kind of feels like a, a killing blow because then you would just never be able to ever tell when like the American Petroleum Institute was donating to to elected officials, I feel like. It's scary out there. And HR1, which just got passed out of the House a couple weeks ago, which addresses a lot of the dark money in politics. This is one of the things that we need to reform the filibuster for. And we're quickly going down a route that I would love to spend all of the time talking about. But I want to take it a little bit back to Climate Voice, because specifically, I think there's, in my mind, there's two issues here. One, actually getting people to do it. And two, raising awareness about the fact that it's not being done and that the norm in politics is for corporations to very quietly, like you said, apply pressure through channels that are unbeknownst to most of us. So like part of what you're doing is also engaging people to say, hey, this is going on. It's happening already. And it's not like we're starting at a neutral playing field here. We're starting decades behind the eight ball. So what's the specific messaging and call to action that you have deployed in that effort? Well, I think you're right. A big part of it is awareness building. And I think we launched Climate Voice in February of 2020. Awesome timing, just before the pandemic. <laughs> it's all like a ton of bricks. I, I don't know if I recommend that or not. It, it was what it was, right? And honestly, you know, in terms of the progress we made, it was a good year, but it was not the year we planned by any means. But we did learn more than I think I expected how much education and awareness building is needed. First of all, there are a lot of people who don't really understand how important policy is. And I think the media is, in, in terms of climate, um, I mean, energy is one of the most regulated sectors on the planet in most places. So you could say, oh, policy doesn't matter. Innovation in the free market will take care of things. Well, I honestly believe innovation in the free market will take care of things, not quickly enough. We mm -hmm. need to cut emissions in half by 2030, and that's now nine years away. And that's a daunting job. It's doable. Biden just announced you know, yesterday that the new nationally determined contribution for the US for the, the uh, climate accord is going to be basically a 50% cut by 2030. It's awesome. Lots of people saying it's not enough. You know, I think the truth is we need to make, take some big steps and then we need to keep ratcheting up and getting that on the books and committing to it and beginning to really put the, the, the hard policies in place that'll make it happen is critical. So especially when I talk to people in the tech industry, I mean, there are a lot of people say, I get really excited by new technology. And part of my reaction is, me too. I spent my career in, in technology, starting in academia and then in industry, and then finally moved into working on climate in tech companies. Mm -hmm. And one of the important things we have to do is innovate. At the same time, just focusing on innovation is not going to get us there. And we also need to you know, move trillions of dollars of money into climate solutions and out of fossil fuel and other climate problems. 
And there are banks that are promising we're going to do hundreds of billions here or a trillion there and so on, which is amazing. But we are still continuing to expand the use of fossil fuels around the world and in this country. Um, and we need to stop expanding and start curtailing the use of fossil fuels rapidly. And innovation market forces, I, I've seen no study or projection other than, you know, some MBA spreadsheet where they put in you know, an exponent to get exponential growth and said, look, you know, it'll all be solved. Um, no study that indicates that we can get there fast enough without public policy. So, so first people have to understand how important public policy is and what kinds of policies are needed. And we can come back to the kinds of policies. Secondly, they need to understand the point, the exact point we were just talking about, which is the massive and often hidden influence of the fossil fuel industry in keeping those policies so they favor the, the, the status quo, that they favor the ongoing you know, operation of that industry and their revenue stream and profits. And it's massive influence. And I think Jess, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, you can look at that and think, well, we're just screwed because how do we fix that? So, and, and you know, I mean, I tend to be a glass half empty person some of the times and there are definitely days when I learn and say, wow, this is, it's really hard. We're in a bad place. But I do think there are ways to address it. And one of the things is to figure out, well, what are all of the forms of influence in our society that can help counter that? And where I've chosen to focus is on mobilizing the influence of major companies who are not invested in the fossil fuel industry, right? So big tech companies, big healthcare companies, big pharma and biotech, fashion, lots of other sectors. You know, if we reduce our use of fossil fuels, they aren't really going to care as long as, the, as they can get the energy they need. So, the, and, and in some cases, like, um, you know, food and beverage or agriculture, there's certainly been ties between the fossil fuel industry and agriculture, but agricultural companies understand increasingly the threat that climate change poses to their business. And food and beverage companies are looking at, you know, their, their supply chain, their, their feedstock, you know, where they get their raw materials from are under threat. Much for, you know, the tech companies, I mean, do they face a threat to their business? If the whole economy suffers, they're going to suffer. But otherwise, will climate really hurt their business? Probably not anytime soon. So there are lots of sectors that see the potential problems of climate. And they will not be negatively affected directly by climate policy that might regulate the use of fossil fuels, begin to phase it out and so on. But they are mostly on the sidelines, not exercising their influence to help counter the influence of fossil fuels. So this is not a silver bullet that's gonna magically cause, you know, big kumbaya moment on Capitol Hill and suddenly everybody's joining together. But it is a really important lever of influence that is currently unused or mostly unused that we believe we can help mobilize and that will shift the balance of power. Um, so let me stop there. Um, so just, I, I, I have a, a few in. thoughts. <laughs> I, I, 
don't necessarily disagree that um, tech companies aren't aren't directly impacted by climate policy. I know California, where Silicon Valley is, has some of the most, like it's one of the most environmentally regulated states. But I feel like just with California wildfires, they do have an interest in climate policy and their business model because if they're, if like Google's campus is getting burned down by forest fires every year, that's a lot of money and resources that they're wasting to try and rebuild it. And so I feel like there is that incentive for them to maybe support policies that would help mitigate that. Yes. Um, and this other thing is that I think places like the fashion industry or, and some of the other ones that you mentioned that aren't necessarily invested in fossil fuels kind of are because you mentioned that they only care if it impacts their bottom line or if they can get their the energy they need and so if we are decreasing fossil fuels which and they haven't like switched to to renewables that's going to impact how they get their energy and make their products which is then going to impact their industry and so i feel like i don't know that's just like an indirect impact you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the point I was trying to make is that I, you know, the fossil fuel companies view climate policy, policy that would, for example, cut our emissions in half, really cut emissions in half by 2030, and not through mostly offsets, but by actually reducing the amount of stuff we burn, which is where a lot of our emissions come from. They view those policies as a direct threat to their business. And so they fight them. These other companies I mentioned, mostly the kinds of climate policies we need to put in place will not negatively affect their business. So they don't have a reason to fight them. They do, I think you're absolutely right, have good reasons to support them. The problem is that, you know, if you're a solar company, policies that will greatly expand the use of solar are great for your business. You know, your sector starts to grow much faster, your business grows, it's awesome. Of course, you're gonna support that. If you're Google, um, I think Google's more at risk. Their, their headquarters is probably honestly more at risk from sea level rise than wildfires. Though, moving here in California, the last three years, you know, last year there were six weeks you, you didn't wanna go outside because it was unhealthy. And, you know, the last three years, we have seen, I think, a significant productivity hit from the, the wildfires, less because of the people who lived where the wildfires were, and more because of the smoke and air quality issues and the increase in asthma and people having to stay home, and either because they had asthma or they had family members with respiratory problems they had to take care of and so on. I think every company saw a productivity hit from that. Yeah. So they are seeing the negative impacts of climate change. My point was they, they will not really see a negative impact from climate policy, but they don't see a direct positive impact on their business in the near term, right? It's a systemic problem and policies that will reduce our use of fossil fuels will, will reduce the damages from wildfires and sea level rise and so on in the future not tomorrow, not next quarter, not next year. Um, and so 
they look at that and I think the, the calculation is we could speak up and speak up in favor of this clean energy standard or clean vehicle standard or you know, pick your policy. We're gonna piss off some people when we do that. We're gonna piss off the people who are strongly opposed to climate policy. And some of them are in positions of power where they could hurt us. So we're gonna speak up on this issue that doesn't directly affect our business in the short term and piss off somebody who will turn around and hurt us in the short term. Or we could say silent and you know, the world may continue to go drive off this climate cliff that we're all hurtling toward, but you know, there's no risk to us immediately if we stay silent. So they're weighing short-term risks versus very long-term systemic risk and continually saying, we're gonna stay silent on this one. Not every time, far too often. Sure, I understand your point now. And sorry, like, I just have, I have two more. Jess, uh, do you never need to apologize for having ideas and contributions? You are an equal member of our team. <laughs> uh, okay. You are the cynical one that literally lives in a room that is a rainbow. And so like if you, you 100%, your voice is valuable. Uh, uh, living contradiction then. I contradict myself very well. I contain multitudes. That's your, well, that's your Whitman for the day. Go on. There you go. Perfect. Now I'm thinking of Walt Whitman baseball quotes, but I will stay on topic. I would like maybe a little bit of clarification when you mentioned awareness and education in the public, because I've seen news stories saying that climate awareness and concern about climate change, at least in America, is at an all time high where a, the overwhelming majority of Democrats and to a smaller extent, all Americans believe it's something that needs to be addressed immediately. So is the idea that it's specifically about policy rather than just climate issues in general? Yes, absolutely. So yes, I would say awareness and concern about climate in the US and I think globally is at an all time high. And even in the face of COVID last year, there was a lot of worry, I think on some people's part last spring as COVID really raged out of control. There was a lot of concern that, that people wouldn't have the, the, the sort of mental space to, to worry about climate. And they did. And even with the racial justice protests, which, which you know, I think have helped lay bare for many people who weren't quite so aware issues that have been there for centuries, even with all the attention to that, people still were paying attention to climate. So I think it's there in people's minds. I think that what people, many people do not understand is how important public policy is. It's not that the government should do everything and they'll fix it all. The issue is private enterprise can't do everything on its own. The profit motive is gonna continue to drive money into things that are contributing to climate at too fast a rate, not fast enough into things that will help solve the problem without market rules that say, you know, it's gonna cost you more to burn gasoline or that, you know, your car company, a certain percentage of your cars have to be zero emissions this year and that percentage is gonna go up each year. 
there are a bunch of different kinds of policies that can drive the change we need. Those policies are vital. And a lot of people don't understand that. Some of them are basically libertarians and don't want, want to admit that any government policy is ever the right way to go. But they're not the one, I don't expect I will convince them, but there are many who I think, and there've been you know, polls, studies of the Yale Center on Climate Change Communication showing that I think the majority of the, strong majority of the American public believes that the government should do more. So that's something we need to, to make clear what kinds of policies and how important they are. And then people need to understand the, the political power dynamic around the fossil fuel companies and other companies and what needs to shift there. Those are the things that we, we need to educate people on. And the, the last point I'll make is that, so our goal overall with Climate Voice is to get companies to go all in. Everything they do, they should be looking at, not just from a, through a sort of financial lens about what's the impact on their profit and loss at the end of the quarter of the year, but from a climate bottom line, what's the impact on the climate, not just for their own operations, but for the whole system, for society. And one of the things that companies do, especially big companies, is exercise political influence. And so we want them to ask that question about the climate, about how they use their political influence. And that's true when they proactively speak up for or against something, but it's also true when they sit on the sidelines and stay silent, because that is a choice that is allowing someone else to dominate the conversation. So we want all companies to do that. Right now we have a campaign, it's called One in Five for 1.5. It's aimed at the five biggest US tech companies. So Apple, Amazon, Alphabet slash Google, Facebook and Microsoft. And we're asking them to make climate one of their top lobbying advocacy priorities this year, 2021, and to commit one in five of their lobbying dollars to lobbying for policies that will keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. 1.5 degrees C is the threshold that I think a consensus has been building the last few years that if at all possible, we need to keep warming below that, we need to aim for that. If we miss it by a little bit, it's not like there's a, a, a cliff there, but there's a steepening slope. You know, two degrees would, one and a half won't be great, two degrees will be bad, three or four will likely be catastrophic. So everyone seems to be organizing around the goal of 1.5. And we want these, there are a lot of fives in this, this whole campaign. We want those five companies to commit one in five of their lobbying dollars to keep us below 1.5 degrees. And we'd like every other company to do the same, but we, you know, we're a small organization. We need to focus. And so we are focused on these companies because they're huge. They have enormous power and influence. They got lots of money and they're hiring like mad. And the way we are, are putting pressure on companies and getting them to change what they're doing is we are focused on educating and engaging their workforce, current employees, students as future employees. Because if you're hiring fast and competing hard for top talent, and that top talent starts to think, you know, this other company, I, you know, there's interesting work to do here. There's also interesting work at this other company and they are better on climate. Maybe I'll go there. 
it gets harder for you to hire. And that is something that, that then becomes an immediate risk to their operations that they need to think about. I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually, that was going to be my question was that climate change in terms of policies is not an existential threat to the tech companies, but the perception of the tech companies as a force for good sure as shit is because they are telling, they've been telling the world for such a long time, we're here to connect you. We're here to bring you information. We're here to make flat earth possible. And we keep seeing examples of like, well, this is, I speak only for myself, not for the who's paving the planet organization and certainly not for climate boys, but there was this amazing podcast series called rabbit hole that talked about how YouTube and Twitter and the Facebook algorithm reinforces these negative impulses towards extremism, conspiracy theories, and what have you while seeking profit motives. Have you not seen the social dilemma on Netflix? Another great one. The social dilemma. These stories are coming out left, right? That the companies like aren't necessarily a force for good. And so if you have a choice, like you were saying, and this is leading up to the question of like, you are the exact example of this that went from working within them to now pressuring them from without. But how are you going to, how are you going to pose this cost structure to them? Right. This like, Hey, there's a cost here that you may not be seeing. And that cost is the one thing you can't sacrifice is talent. Cause the minute you use your competition, that's when your shareholders get pissed. That's when you no longer are leading the edge and you're losing relevancy. So how are you making that like cost? bear like real to them well i think you know first of all it's just that story that if you you know these companies have put themselves forward as leaders i would say honestly over the last decade on climate in a lot of ways they have been leading um, over the last four or five years when it comes to misinformation they have been they they've not just been lagging they've been really on the wrong side of the scale right you know, when I joined Facebook, I joined Google in 06, I joined Facebook in 2012. In neither case at that point did most, I, I, I know there were people who were sort of pointing toward the problems that might arise, but most of us did not see major problems in, in the way those companies helped information flow around the world. We saw a lot of promise, potential problems, but um, there was a lot of hope and faith and maybe a little too much blind faith that it would all work out okay. I think today it's crystal clear that these platforms are tools that can be and have been weaponized for misinformation and disinformation and the platforms are not doing enough to stem that. That, that seems completely evident. That said, in their own operations, in their supply chains, they have been leaders Climate. I would but, say, with the exception of Amazon, because I particularly, I Amazon personally a, have a gripe, have a gripe with Amazon. Amazon but. was a laggard for a long time, and I think it was 2014 or 15. They made a commitment then to to use 100% clean energy in their operations. They did a little bit, and then they went dark for several years. Finally, I think it was um, fall of 2019, September 2019, after a year plus of pressure from thousands of employees, they came out with the climate pledge. And I think they are honestly, you know, we can quibble about the details and debate it and so on, but they are making real progress in their operations. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we need from these companies now, you know, it's great when companies lead and lead by example and show what's possible. And honestly, you know, I would say that 
those companies and a whole bunch of others really helped shift the entire market for renewable energy by driving demand through massive purchases. That helped drive scale, helped drive the cost down. Um, that, that played a really important role over the last number of years. What we need now is to kind of finish the job. Mm-hmm. We need to get the grid to 100% clean energy soon, not in 20 or 30 or 40 years, but in 10 or 15. We need to get the, the transportation fleet to zero carbon soon, 20-ish years, which means every new car needs to be zero emissions you know, within the next decade. That's not going to happen just by companies like Amazon buying electric you know, delivery vans. That's important. It helps. But there's no way that industry scales quickly enough without supportive government policy of various sorts. So that's where we need these companies to lead by playing the role they, they can play and do play in helping set the rules that we all operate by. And you know, fossil fuels are essentially killing us slowly, more slowly than COVID, but they are fundamentally killing us by changing the conditions of life on this planet. They're killing the polar bears. They're killing people around the planet. And we need to phase them out. And we need everybody who claims to be on the, the right side of history in this issue to use whatever influence they have to help make that happen. And I, I can definitely see what you mean about Grounded Hope and you being an optimist. Because <laughs> I just, I feel like you have a lot of faith in companies that they're going to operate in good faith, which I respect because I think it takes a lot of character to believe that, unfortunately. You know, I don't I don't believe that. I don't believe that companies at their core are going to operate in good faith. I think that the landscape is changing, that it's more profitable to do the right thing. And that's going to happen more and more. So I because I, like, no, companies are going to increase shareholder value at the end of the day. I've yet to see a company want, with one or two exceptions say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make less money because it's right. Like we got to make it so that you can make as much money by doing it right and put pressure on it. And there's so many examples. You remember when Nike came out with the Colin Kaepernick ad? saying that like we stand behind him, Black Lives Matter. And people are like, you're going to get crushed. And their stock went up by 18% the next day. People want this. I can My guarantee you. keeps coming in the background. Like yeah. I want him to go work at one of these companies one day because they did the right thing because they made the world a better thing. And I'm willing to put my money behind the companies that I believe in. So there should be a financial incentive tied to the moral one rant over it. Well, I think so. I I would say, Jess, I don't have deep faith that companies will just do the right thing. I think the incentives need to be there to push them to push them or entice them. Right. And right now, the incentives when it comes to climate are, you know, 10 years ago, lots of companies are like, it's not my problem. I'm, you know, government should solve it or, you know, or maybe it's not real. I don't know. But some companies were leading and investing people and, and other resources, real money in buying clean energy, building clean energy product projects and so on. Today, many companies are buying clean energy because it makes financial sense and it's good for their reputation. And if they don't, they're seen as a laggard and the, the quality of their reputation matters. We can get them to do the right thing by affecting their reputation by putting pressure on and so a way of doing that that I think can affect them most quickly is through 
their hiring and retention needs For so sure. through, through the workforce, through the talent pool, that we can if we can change the perception that college students have of a company, either for better or for worse, that affects their ability to hire. And if they are growing fast or if they've got, you know, you'll hear a lot of the big utilities in this country, they have a hiring problem, not because they're expanding, because they got a lot of old, mostly guys who are, you know, in their 50s and 60s and will be retiring over the next decade. And they're going to need to hire a lot of talented, highly trained people. And most of those young people, again, saying, well, A, you're, you know, your industry is a dinosaur. B, it's, it's a major part of the climate problem. Why would I want to work for you? So some of those utilities, which have been on the wrong side of the climate issue, are beginning to shift for a whole bunch of reasons. One of which is if they can't hire people, they can't stay in business. So I, you know, I spent years inside Google, inside Facebook, I mean, I think in both companies, there was a genuine desire to do the right, right thing and do good. Um, there also was a limit to what they were willing to do on that. And the more I started to push about, look, we are doing some real good here. We're, you know, we're 100% clean energy. We're doing this and that in our operations. It's amazing. And the most important thing we could be doing that we're not is really stepping up on climate policy. The answer I got was, we're not going to do that. And so that, in the end, is why I've stepped outside of these companies. And I feel like what they need is the outside, outside and inside pressure, the pressure from employees, from their talent pool, from the general public, from investors that says, we need and expect you to do this. And if you don't, we're going to be less likely to work for you, we're going to be less likely to invest in you, we'll be less likely to buy your products, etc. That that will get them to do what I think in many cases they want to do, but they're scared. You know, they see risks, so they, they kick the can down the road. I guess, I don't know, I, I guess that's just my own bias and intending to focus on what they're not doing rather than praising them for the, the little bit that they do engage in. Um, so like Amazon signing the deal with Rivian to like have 100% electric vehicles like doesn't like I'm not going to give you a cookie or a treat because <laughs> why, why should I kind of thing. But Amazon's that's climate pledge. The fact that they're they're putting stickers on products that they say are like climate pledge certified, if those products are more ergonomically packaged so that they can fit in the boxes better so that they can optimize their shipping is such an affront to like, sorry, I get, oh, that's a trigger because, issue for me. Is it because there can only be one bald man? And it's just, <laughs> you're, you just don't like Bezos because <laughs> you need to have the best bald head. No. I think that's what it is. That's your I, underlying I issue. I have feelings about Bezos regardless of our follicle relationship. But mm. <laughs> thank you for that, Jess. You're welcome. So, Bill, let me but, ask but, but I think, Je Jess, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think most NGOs, they, they fall into two camps. You know, and I'm going to overly caricature things here. They're the ones who are completely antagonistic to virtually all companies, except maybe Ben and Jerry's in Patagonia. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, and they beat companies up for the bad things they're doing. 
And then there are NGOs that work with companies and try to get them to do less bad and more good. And the, the NGOs that beat companies up are mostly deploying sticks and beating them up. And the others are mostly deploying carrots you do a, or, or cookies. You do a good thing, we'll give you a cookie. Um, yeah, there are a hundred other good things we need you to do, but you did one, you get a cookie. And we'll praise you in the press and you know to the public and so on. The problem is that exactly what you're saying, we need, we need, and this is part of what we're trying to do, is get people to focus on not the occasional or maybe even relatively frequent good thing that a company is doing, but what we need them to do and look at that gap. And if they're not willing to start closing it rapidly, then we're going to beat them up. So totally. right now, these companies, the big five tech companies are you know, they've stepped up a little bit. We've seen a little movement in the last few months. They are being more vocal on some policies. They are, have stated their support for a strong NDC, which Biden just announced. Some of them have said they will support a clean energy standard, which is part of Biden's overall infrastructure proposal. That's awesome. The real question is, as this stuff moves into Congress and begins to be debated and the, you know, the arm twisting starts to happen and so on, are they going to be in there lobbying like they really mean it and like it's, it's an existential issue for them? Are they going to be sitting back and saying, well, we signed a letter supporting it, or we said we support it. We even go in there to Capitol Hill and say we support it. But, you know, if some senator votes the other way, we'll thank him for his time and tell him, you know, we agree to disagree and that's it. Or will there be real consequences? Will they tell senators, if you vote the wrong way on this, we're going to take our economic growth and our business to some other state. You look at what's happened in Georgia recently around voting rights, where a whole bunch of companies said, we're going to boycott the state because of what the state is doing. You look at what happened in, in North, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. In 2016, around the bathroom bill, the NBA, I think, all-star game left the state. And, and you know, I probably told this joke too many times, but I, I am told people in North Carolina care about basketball. That got their attention. And a bunch of other companies that were creating a lot of economic value in the state either left the state or threatened to. And that got their attention, even though that was a deeply political, politicized, you know, sort of, in some people's view, deeply on both sides, deeply moral issue. In the end, the economics got and say, well, you know, we, we will fix this. So that was companies being willing to go to the mat and treat the issue like a really existential one that they were willing to put themselves on the line for. They need to do that for climate, for all of us. What do you feel about the, sorry, Jess, Oh, I was just going to say you sort of preemptively an answered the question I, I was going to ask you about what Mitch McConnell said in terms of uh, the Georgia bill specifically and keeping corporate corporations should not get involved. But except when they're giving him money, in which case he's he's welcome. Hypocrisy doesn't register, Lex. <laughs> of course not. Hypocrisy is rampant in politics. So, you know, that's that's it. Sure. On, on all sides. Yeah. And then I also just want to point out that recently, because I, huge baseball fan, the MLB leaving, moving the All-Star game from Atlanta to Colorado because of that bill. Yep. We just saw a union vote go down in Alabama. 
and when I'm thinking about like collective active uh, organizing around issues within organizations, unions used to be the bedrock of that in our country. And they're now gutted, right? You, one of you seen do this, but if you were going to take this issue and saying, Hey, how are we going to get employees and companies to affect the things that the companies do 40 years ago, 50 years ago? The first thing you would say is what's the union say about it? So how do you feel about the state of unions and specifically their complete lack of any representation in those big tech companies? Um, I think the, you know, unions are not perfect, but they provide labor with an important way of balancing or, or, or counteracting and negotiating with the power of management. Um, and um, and I think today unions are far too weak. Labor has far too little power, including the skilled, you know, skilled, they're all skilled, but the highly educated, you know, professional part of the labor force. Um, you know, I think that increasingly people at places like Google are realizing that for all the company's idealistic statements over the years about this is your company and you have freedom and so on, they don't have anywhere near so much freedom as they, they used to or as they thought they did. And in the end, management runs the company. Mm -hmm. And I think there, you know, there, there's a union movement growing in Google. And it's what's called a minority union. So they don't have to take a vote and get a majority of employees to agree to actually have it be, become a union. It doesn't have the kind of collective bargaining power that around wages and so on that a majority union would. Um, so I think there are a variety of ways in which employees today are beginning to organize and be activists on things that matter directly to them, like wages and working conditions, and on things that matter, in some cases, they feel very passionately about and really matter to them, but maybe more of an issue for the broader society, like racial justice or voting rights or climate. And I don't know, I mean, there are some sectors where traditional unions are very much on board with climate action. The service sector is one. There are a bunch of unions that are still mostly, I think, against climate policy and climate action because they're worried about the threat to their jobs. Um, there was just a news report, however, about the, I think the United Mine Workers being willing, saying they're willing to support climate policy if there are provisions in there to help drive retraining and job growth in the communities that are being gutted by the loss of coal mining jobs and so on. So they're beginning to recognize that industry is going away and it's in their interest to not to sit back and you know, resist the transition to get in there and negotiate on how this transition will be done in a way that, that makes it as positive as possible for them. Mm -hmm. So this is about, I mean, it's not about a single employee raising their voice or a, a single student raising their voice. It is about many voices. And what we're doing with Climate Voice is allowing people to add their voices to petitions where we will not share their name and contact information publicly or with the companies. So we are, we want to show the, the scale of support, the thousands of people who are calling on these companies to do things, 
but we're not going to give the companies the names. They don't need the names. The only reason they'd want the names would be to retaliate. That's the only thing they could do with them. And we are encouraging people to speak up internally at companies or in job interviews, but to do it in a, you know, we start in a constructive way. You know, if they're pissed off and want to be combative, that's their choice. But the truth is these companies have power and they can do a lot of good with it. If they choose to, we need to convince them to do that. And I think the, the, a good starting point is to be clear to them that, you know, you're mostly on the sidelines. There are studies coming out of a group in the UK called Influence Map that show how much they're on the sidelines compared to big oil. It's like 10 to one difference. And they could change that. And if I were an employee, I'd be saying, look, the, given where young people are today on climate, um, given what groups like Climate Voice are doing to highlight how silent companies like Google or the other big tech companies are in public policy and how that silence plays out as complicity with big oil. If I were an employee, I'd be saying, we're, we're backing ourselves into a real hiring problem. We're gonna have a really hard time recruiting because groups like Climate Voice or Greenpeace or whoever will, will be able to paint us as just in bed with big oil through inaction, not through direct action on their side maybe, but still, almost as bad time for si us to get silence is silence is complicity right like That's at right. this point like there is no there is no sideline you are either... not, it is not neutrality yeah um right and also the incremental steps we're going to incrementally step our way into oblivion like we don't have the opportunity for these small sort of you know cookies as you put it just like right. this those are those are nearly as useless is just doing nothing because it gives you the sense of progression without addressing the scale that the progress needs to be happening. Well, in, in fact, not nearly as useless as doing nothing. I think there's an argument to be made. If someone does something and you give them a cookie and that's it and no one says, but wait, there's this whole other pile of stuff we need to do you've essentially created a moral hazard where people feel like, wow, we're making progress. Right. And so it reduces the sense of urgency. It reduces the, the need that people see for the kinds of policies we need. I don't know if either of you or if your, your listeners have read Michael Mann's, uh, you know, Professor Michael Mann, the famous climate scientist from Penn State. I, I've gotten to know him a little bit recently, which I feel very honored. He and I wrote an op-ed that was in uh, Newsweek a few weeks ago. He has a new book out called The New Climate War. And one of the things he talked about, he talks about in that book and what's resonated with me and which I've been part of the argument I've been trying to make for years now to my colleagues in tech companies and elsewhere is when you do something and kind of hold yourself up as a hero and don't talk about what else needs to be done, you're, you are creating a moral hazard that big oil then drives a truck through. Right. Big oil loves to have us focus on, you know, look at the, the net zero claims that these folks are making. We're making such progress. Um, you know, look at the, the individual actions that so-and-so is taking. That's amazing. It all is amazing, but we need to make systemic change, which means we need, and to do that at, you know, to cut emissions in half by 2030, we need public policy. Yeah. And so when companies tout their heroic actions and don't talk about the broader system in the context of what's needed, 
they're creating that moral hazard. So, so doing that little thing that gets you a cookie actually can be worse than doing nothing because it reduces the appetite people have for the big change we need. That, that's a major problem. The Charles C. Mann connection is awesome. Have you, have you read Wizards versus Profits? I have not. It's really good. I bet you would like yeah, it. I'll put it on my list. Yeah. And then I'll have to read New Climate War, but that's so cool. So, so I want to make sure I get it, get in here, you know, before we close. So, so companies that care about climate can do much more than they are today. And we need them to, and the bar is rising for them. And it's on all of us, whether you work at one of these companies or you might someday, or you, you know, use their products or whatever. It's on all of us to raise that bar and set that ex expectation. So we right now are focused on the big five tech companies. We want them to devote one in five of their lobbying dollars to help keep us below 1.5 degrees of warming. And we've got a petition at one in five for 1.5.org. The one and the five are numerals. Everything else is, you know, words written out. We'll put everything in the show notes with links um, and make sure that all of that and we'll in the intro, Jess and I will talk about all of the sort of like main points to hit. This is where you go. This is what you do at the top. Yeah. 100%. I, I hope that you can come back because I would love to talk to you about companies hiring and and whether or not um, climate is going to be an issue or if they can get around it with AI and personality testing, things like that. Um, um, I, but, I hope they can't, but this, there is no question companies have marketing machines. So, you know, the, whatever we and other groups are throwing at them in terms of reputation, they work really hard to counter it. And you're right that, you know, maybe they say, well, those, you know, that 10% of our 20% of our uh, talent pool that really cares about climate, we'll just, you know, use our AI to to find the people we need who don't care so much about climate and, and find the ones that are just as good technically. That, you know, that's a concern. But this is about social license to operate, social license to hire people. Um, and so it's about making sure that broadly, the narrative we are all telling ourselves about what companies need to do includes the role they play in our policy political system. And that's mostly not, you know, we, most people don't think about that. Yeah. I, I, have you ever been to uh, LaGuardia? They replaced all of the bartenders with iPads not too long ago. And it's the most depressed, like you're walking around. It's like when, when bartenders are replaced by an iPad, like I'm out, like the, we fucked it. The world should end. I feel the same way about like, <laughs> like a hiring manager. When a hiring manager is a robot and there's no human connection, like, we've crossed the threshold or whatever. Like we don't deserve this opportunity, but I have a personal affinity for bartenders. Um, we do hope you do come back, Bill. This has been so much fun. Thank you again. All the information is going to be in the show notes. We've got all of it in the top. And so we're going to be huge supporters of what you're doing. Anything we can do to help amplify the message, including this and falling on from it, let us know we are here to be advocates for what you're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. And I hope to do it again soon. All right, cheers.